Good morning, everybody. Today is Saturday, November 26th. You are watching or listening to another edition of Forward Maryland. Steve Hunt is not with us today. He is watching his beloved Blue Hens uh, play a home game in the first round of the football championship subdivision playoffs, aka Division I AA. So, Steve, good luck to the Blue Hens. I know you were hoping to be here, but you also got a better deal, you Hammenager. So uh, that lies into the theme of today's show. We hope everybody's enjoyed their Thanksgiving. We had done enough to bring you a lot of detailed uh, uh, punditry and incisive analysis regarding the elections and the outcome of same. Now it's time to have a little fun. On this Survivor Series Saturday, it is time to talk about the greatest sport in the world, professional wrestling. I have assembled an august team that has never been equaled in any part of the United States, Africa, and the Indian subcontinent. Only the panel that, that uh, interviewed Pat Patterson after he won the first intercontinental title championship tournament for the WWF in Rio de Janeiro uh, could boast a more august membership. And so I'm going to introduce the members of today's panel. And for an introduction, we'll have everybody introduce themselves, who they are and what they do, and also indicate a little bit about how the greatest sport in the world, professional wrestling, has influenced their lives. Two of these guests on my panel today you have met before, aficionados. One is new, and I'm going to introduce the new shooter in the ring first. So Nat Forgotson. Tell us about yourself, sir. All right. So I my day job is in civil space. So I help NASA build satellites. And that's about as much as I want to talk about there. Pro wrestling has been part of my life since I was a teenager. I used to watch it the way many teenagers watch porn. I'd have the den locked. And if I heard my dad knocking, I'd quickly change the channel to cartoons or something that was okay because my family didn't respect pro wrestling. They didn't want me watching it. So, of course... Once I became professional and started my electrical engineering career, I had to do something else. Uh, it was a little stifling to work in a top secret facility, not see the sun all day. And I said, what do I want to do on the side? And after having been a fan for many, many years, I signed up with the Bonebreakers Wrestling Academy here in Maryland and trained to be a pro wrestling manager. I wanted to be just like Jim Cornette. So developed a personality, became Platinum Nat, the holiest man in wrestling and uh, went on to manage for about five years. And to this day, I continue to coach and produce for wrestling. Outstanding, good sir. Our next panelist is a, form, is a friend of the podcast. You remember her as the former congressional candidate from the first congressional district, Jennifer Pingley. Jen, welcome back. Hi, glad to be back. Um, like Bill said, I uh, ran in first congressional district in the 2020 uh, season. And professional wrestling has been a part of my life since I was a kid. My parents were fans. I'm a fan. I'm raising my kids to be fans. And it's a huge confidence boost just to watch. And you pick up a lot of things and skills you can learn later in life, which we'll talk about later in the podcast. And the final and perhaps most celebrated member of our August panel is a three-time now uh, podcast guest getting ready to get that Saturday Night Live brown smoking jacket for five appearances. 
uh, Len Foxwell. Mr. Woodcock, it is a pleasure to be with you again for this, my third visit. And it's an honor to be part of the greatest assemblage of wisdom uh, situated in one place since the Grand Wizard last dined alone. Uh, I have been watching wrestling since 1982. My introduction to wrestling was, it was unusual for the time and it was extremely fortunate. At that time, uh, typical, typical wrestling matches on TV were squash matches. You know, a monster heel or a celebrated face would go up against what we would call a jobber. And it would be in the whole purpose of the wrestling hours was to essentially be an infomercial for the dark arena shows. Well, my first show that I ever watched was first match I ever tuned into. It was a replay of the Madison Square Garden bout in early 1982, where Pedro Morales regained the coveted intercontinental title from the magnificent Morocco and was a bloodbath, as one would expect it to be between those two celebrated brawlers. And from that moment on, I was hooked and I've been a fan ever since. So I look forward to delving into the conversation and drawing those parallels between life in the squared circle and life in the great blue yonder. And thank you, Len. And my own experience as a grappling geek uh, goes back to watching not one, but two hours of WWF wrestling as a child in Howard County as we would get on our antenna, both Washington and DC stations, you would have to see uh, WWF Champions of Wrestling at 11 a.m. on channel 20. And then you also then have to watch it at 4 p.m. on channel 45 out of Baltimore. Regardless of the fact that it was the exact same show with the exact same squash matches, the promised appearance of notables such as world, uh, world champion Bob Backlund and the incomparable Bruno Sammartino never came. Um, you know, we, we would watch it because there would be different announcements for the live shows, be they at the Baltimore Civic Center or the Cap Center. Uh, the most thrilling thing I remember seeing back in those uh, snowy days was the two out of three falls match for the WWF Tag Team Championship between Tony Gurria and Rick Martel versus Mr. Fuji and Mr. Saito, which ended as many Fuji Saito matches were, were had to with um, salt in the eyes of Rick Martel. And then, therefore, the third the third fall was 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 won, and the heels won the championship. Um, you know, many, many, many other experiences with many other territories and many things since then. But as have we all, so I don't want to go into it any further. Our time here is limited, and let's spend the next half hour or so talking a little wrestling. So I'm gonna let I'm gonna put this first thing out to how you know, to your all's regular lives. I mean, Jen, I mean, you, you know, you're, you're, you're a nurse by profession, you know, Len in the political arena, Nat in the, in this, in the space world and myself in, in the community world medicine, um, now the arts, you know, how, how do you, you know, how do you apply things that you have seen in pro wrestling, which I believe we will all agree 
has such a terrific element of psychology and influence. Uh, how do you apply those in your in your real world lives? Number one, I don't think people realize how prevalent wrestling is, particularly in uh, Maryland, Delaware, uh, this general area. I mean, it's pretty big across the world. Uh, but for me, it's one of those things where you can kind of start to read the, the patients or the clients that are walking through your door. And sometimes the only thing we have in common is the fact that we both like professional wrestling, which is a completely... Uh, completely fun way to break the ice because what I'm doing, you know, medicine is, uh, it's cold, it's very clinical. So anytime you can warm up that interaction, um, especially when you start talking about, you know, you want to talk about Ric Flair, you want to talk about um, Baron Corbin, you know, you want to start talking about uh, The Rock, you start getting into those and it kind of relaxes the situation. And they're, they're people that, um, Wrestling people are people where we can like all sorts of uh, different wrestling uh, stables. We can like the different uh, wrestling promotions and we can still have a really good conversation about the art and the production of it. Uh, the other thing that I applied was when I was a kid, one of the best and coolest things to do was trying to cut the promos ad lib to the guys cutting the promos and the ladies cutting the promos, um, especially from the late, late 80s, early 90s wrestling, uh, which were some of the most fun that I've ever seen, um, which literally helped my uh, oratory skills as I grew up, um, as I became a public speaker, and then later a congressional candidate. Because to be honest, the process of cutting a promo for politics is not that different from cutting a promo for professional wrestling. It's identical. <laughs> <laughs> Having taught pro host for a while now, it's yeah. hooking your audience, getting them emotionally involved is 100% the same thing. So, exactly. Yeah. Jen, who, who were some of those influences? I'm sorry? Who were some of those wrestlers you looked at to as influences? Macho Man Randy Savage, Ric Flair, uh, big fan of The Rock's Mike Skills, uh, CM Punk. Um, I'm uh, repping Jay White here because I like Jay White. Um, I really like uh, the evolution of Shinsuke Nakamura, who came from New Japan and has been in WWE for like the past 10 years. Um, so get them from a couple of different spots, but always people who are very poignant and very choosy about their words and different levels of flourish, which you have to master when you're talking with people, because you can't always be 110% all the time. You got to learn to be sometimes a little bit more quiet, sometimes a little bit more mid-grade and sometimes absolutely spectacular. Nat, I, you sounded like you were you were getting ready to, to launch there. Oh, no, that's fine. I just wanted to add a little bit, but it's 100% true that public speaking in general, if you tie it back to wrestling, it's all the same skills. I learned that pretty early in my career when I was still doing hands-on electrical engineering, and I was doing a design review for one of the first circuits I ever designed, and a senior engineer pulled me aside and said, you're going to be presenting to the Navy. There's a bunch of guys who do not like one of the things that's in your circuit design, but you have on your side heritage. It's flown already in space. It works. Guaranteed this one, because it's identical, you can call that out. So this is in the days where before PowerPoint, got the, the transparencies and I'm flipping them, going through my circuit design in front of a bunch of badged you know, guys with all the, the things on their chest, uh, high ups from the Navy. And I get to that slide where here comes that bad circuit. I said, I better own my audience the same way I do in pro wrestling. So I'm not even going to turn this over. 
I'm going to wait because what you're about to see is something that you're not going to like, but it flew on this satellite and it's working. It's been working for three years. So here I present one shot circuit and I could see the faces, but because I own the audience, I took away their ability to criticize me. And that knowledge going in, how do you take an audience and swing it to your side, prevent them from having any ability to criticize was such a necessary skill. And I've taken that on now that I'm a vice president of my company. It's always, how do you get the fans emotionally involved? How do you get your employees emotionally involved? It's a lot of the same skill sets. Nat, all right, Nat, that is terrific. And as I'm hearing your answer, I'm also thinking about the business of political persuasion. And Len, that's where you fit in. Are you hearing here a lot of the same themes of what you've used over your career? Of course I am. So, Bill, you're obviously familiar with a great deal of my career. And just for our two distinguished, my two distinguished colleagues, my relationship with Bill Woodcock dates back to the fall of 1991 and the Young Democrats of Maryland convention in which Bill Woodcock made an entry into the Timonium Fairgrounds. I knew you were going there. That, that was rivaled only by Ric Flair's arrival at the 1985 Great American Bash in a helicopter as he pre prepared to defend the coveted NWA title against Nikita Koloff. All kidding aside, you know that when I would manage issues for, when I was Peter Franco's chief of staff for several years, and one of the many things I did for the comptroller is manage, the, manage his legislative portfolio and manage the issues that he would choose to engage or to not engage in. And we abided by a certain credo that I established very early on, which is that we don't advocate for issues, we tell stories. And legislative and public policy matters are best sold when uh, one takes away the, the dry, wonky uh, policy of the matter and tells a story, much as a good booker will do in establishing a wrestling narrative. Yeah, there's got to be a protagonist. There has to be an antagonist. There has to be something meaningful at stake to draw people in. I mean, listen, we know that wrestling has always had elements of drama with a you know with a generous helping of greek tragedy right these are these tend to be three act plays and i always try to tell the you know in, in championing something like air conditioning in the baltimore county public schools or reforming maryland's antiquated craft beer sector i always tried to establish the protagonist whether it was sweaty children who were passing out from Un, you know, uninhabitable classrooms or uh, small local business people who are seeing their family investments swirling the proverbial drain uh, because of laws that are designed to keep them tampered down. We would establish the antagonist. We would create a, a sense of moment and a sense of consequence. What happens if this legislation or if this public policy is not enacted? Well, somebody is going to be victimized by a profound injustice and all of us are going to be diminished. And so our, our, the issues we chose to engage in at our very best weren't necessarily public policy discussions. They were, they were stories. They were storylines. 
and they were played out against a dramatic backdrop. And so I guess to bring this rather long explanation into a single sentence summary, I would say that uh, good issue advocacy is ultimately a matter of good booking. And that's something I learned from watching wrestling in my formative years. And, and Len, I would, I would add to that. Um, in my own experience, I mean, you know, the, the line between, um, you know, perception and reality is forged based in my experience with professional wrestling. Because as, as you know, and, and I'm wearing the t-shirt today, of course, Nat, Nat knew it right away. Rowdy Roddy Piper, WrestleMania one walkout t-shirt, the Panther. Um, you know, that's who I gravitated to as a kid. He's my, he was my all-time favorite. I mean, this guy was not a behemoth, um, did not really have, I thought, amazing ring skills. Although later in his WWE career, he showed it. And then when you go back and watch that Starcade match against, um, you know, uh, Greg Valentine in 1983, you understand how he earned his reputation as one of the toughest SOBs to ever set foot in the ring. And, you know, but, uh, you know, but his mic skills were incredible. He could talk. He could tell a story, you know, and, and then he was also excellent at the one liner to this very day. You know, whenever I think of the capital of city of the state of Ohio, I cannot help but say it in Frankie Williams's voice, Columbus, Ohio. You know, and I never lost a message in Columbus. I never lost a match in Columbus, Ohio. You never won a match in Columbus, Ohio. You suck. And then, and then the way that went with went with poor Frankie's demise and his his issuance forth from Piper's pit. I mean, he learned that Frankie learned that day that just when he thought he had all the answers, Roddy Piper changed the questions. I and I, I used that. for it, and I have used that 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 exact same sentence when I've been up against somebody who I realize I'm an opponent of in some community issue, and I present fact after fact after fact after fact, and the other side has nothing. And I've been known to say that a time or two in a fit of pike. Uh, and, and most notably, and I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I'm going to, uh, you, you know, uh, switching genres. Everybody remembers the movie Diner, remembers Steve Gutenberg's Baltimore Colts quiz to his fiancee. Every woman I have dated seriously since I've been single has had to watch They Live With Me. They have to watch it. There's no, there's no two ways about it. You watch that movie, if you like it, then okay, we're going to the next level. But to me, you know, not just the message about consumerism and, and gross excess, which still rings true today, but, but also, um, but, you know, but, you know, I'm here to chew bubble gum and kick ass and I'm all out of bubble gum, you know, immortal line from movie though. So do you have the they live treetopper? I do not yet, but but considering it. Um, so so yes, it very much plays into, you know, Glenn, to your point, you know, um, and especially in this world and in this climate of 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 the of of influence and politics that we all deal with, 
may not be partisan or issue politics and maybe office politics, you know, oftentimes the noisier person or the more concise pointed message is what wins the day. And, and pro wrestling with its sound, with its 10, five second sound bites and quick buzz lines is extremely conducive to, to that environment. I agree. And uh, I, listen, I think there's always also an element of wrestling and the relationships that pol political figures and politicians have uh, with one another. And we see it all the time where you know under the hot lights of the of the tv cameras uh you know elected officials from opposing parties will engage in pitch combat only to retreat to you know the the committee cloakrooms and the caucus cloakrooms and the, the places where uh, you know lawmakers tend to con bars and restaurants where lawmakers tend to congregate and they kind of set aside their public animus that's not terribly dissimilar to the way that heels and faces would beat one another up with chairs and with other blunt foreign objects, whether it was Kendu Nagasaki's, uh, you know, feared bamboo stick or the dreaded salt that would come out of the pouch of Mr. Fuji at most inopportune moments in a tag team title bout, only to go behind the curtain and uh, drink beer together and play cards and get in the car and travel to the next city together. By the way, Bill, I would just say, add on to something you said earlier about uh, how TV, uh, the TV uh, shows would promote the upcoming cards in Landover, Maryland and in Baltimore. Typically that was a three city tour. Uh, uh, Landover would be on Friday night. The Baltimore Civic Center would be on Saturday night. And then the coup de grace the cherry on top of the proverbial Sunday, the Wicomico Youth and Civic Center in Salisbury, Maryland on Sunday night to cap the uh, the regional swing. And we the exact same matches with the exact same results, but we didn't know in that era, you know, what was happening in Landover, Baltimore. We didn't have internet. We didn't have Twitter or Facebook. So we didn't, we couldn't, we didn't know. So the matches were still kind of unspoiled for us and just absolutely a magical time. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and of course, we never knew in the BW corridor about the Wicomico Youth and Civic Center. Right. And, and we were so naive in that age of innocence that we thought that when Bob Backlund would come to the Wicomico Civic Center to defend the coveted WWF title against Playboy Buddy Rose or John Studd or uh, Sergeant Slaughter, we actually thought that it was a real possibility that the WWF title could change hands in this small venue on the rural Eastern shore with a seating capacity of 6,000 people and light, a lighting system that was primitive at best for its time. Um, only later we learned that, you know, that titles were meant to be changed in Madison Square Garden or in a televised match. Absolutely, absolutely. The Boston Garden, and of course there was the one title change of superstar Billy Graham over Pedro Morales that did happen at the Baltimore Civic Center. So, so a couple weeks ago, I saw a post-election analysis from Senator Tom Cotton, uh, who I, I'm not sure, you know, I, I, I know everybody's politics on here. 
I know he would be none of our uh, brand of tea, but he made a certain comment that does not help but perk up this wrestling fan's ears, where he said, where he talked about, um, you know, the chances of defeating former President Trump in the Republican primary in 2024, he said, well, you know, to be the man, you have to beat the man. Which was quite familiar. And of course, the, the sporting world is full of allegories towards professional wrestling. Um, I, I'm not sure how much the world of business, although they're, they're, I cannot, I was looking for like an applicable recent quote, but I could not find any. Um, but, you know, there, there's certainly, you know, I believe I remember some CEO saying something about being the best there is, the best there was, the best there ever will be. Um, you know, it, it, and it seems like, you know, it, it seems like wrestling has jumped the veil and it's more than niche. It's, 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 it's mainstream. I mean, you know, Nat, you've worked in, in areas, you know, in, in arenas with like, you know, a, a few thousand, you know, a few hundred people. Up to and a couple he, thousand. Ocean City Civic there, Center. Yeah, yeah, and I've been there too. And I've been to Joppa, you know. So, you know, and, and that's not exactly the most progressive part of the state. But how, I mean, my question is, and, and, and Len and Jen, feel free to chime in as you can. How do you see, like, the, the reflections of the crowd match the zeitgeist of the population? And, and how do wrestling characters, you know, folks in the, in the, in the matches, you know, play on that? Yeah. Right, I'm going to just go with my gimmick because sure. <laughs> I got into wrestling, uh, you know, I didn't really have the holy character when I got into this. I knew I wanted the name Platinum Nat. I wanted to wear a silver suit. I just wanted to be a heel. I wanted to be like Jim Cornette. I wanted people to hate me so much that when someone brought out the noose, and tried to tie me to the back of a truck that they were cheering for me to die. As I remember watching the Midnight Riders try to do that to Cornette. Uh, but when I wore the silver suit for the first time to Bonebreakers and the owners of, at the time, MEWF said, you're gonna be an evil preacher, much like Steve Martin in Leap of Faith. I, I totally bought into it. And going to where you were, Bill, a lot of the audience is conservative Christians. And getting to play an evil preacher who was calling them out on their hypocrisy made me so villainous for a lot of folks. It was awesome getting in there and quoting the Bible uh, and telling people there were a bunch of sinners uh, with the highlight of that being a show we did at a strip club in West Virginia uh, where the matches were taking place in between the women dancing. Uh, and at one point I came out with the Bible and started calling them all sinners and quoted, whoever looks at a woman with lust in his eyes has already committed adultery in his heart. In the middle fingers, people booing me. And of course, I was in the main event. I got to do an oil wrestling match with a woman and they were auctioning off. Who wants to put oil on the woman, Angel? And all the hands went up, all the money went up. And then when they came to me, a bunch of money went up. People wanted to come out of the audience and I was not gonna let that happen as the bad guy. I didn't wanna see these drunk guys put their friends up to it. So I had it, Jeff Amder, and you know Jeff, uh, our, our timekeeper at the time, come up and he sold it like a champ. Okay, in. 
Uh, but getting back to the point, a, a lot of it is you either have to go completely against the politics of the crowd or show them that they're a bunch of hypocrites. And either way, you become a pretty good heel. You know, I, I mean, I, people talk about the WWF expansion era and they think about Hulk Hogan defeating the Iron Sheik and ushering in the era of Hulkamania, which has now become synonymous in retrospect with the expansion era. But sometimes it's easy to forget that the actual greatest heat of 1984, which was the first year of the expansion age, was generated by the feud between Sergeant Slaughter and the Iron Sheik. And that was a feud that was, it generated so much heat and it generated so much mainstream attention because it was so synchronous with the zeitgeist uh, in our country uh, where it was, the, it was the height of Reagan era, born in the USA, even though we didn't really take time to listen to the lyrics and understand what Springsteen was actually singing about it was demonstrative patriotism. It was flag-waving, chest-pounding patriotism. And Sergeant Slaughter, the, the reformed Marine drill instructor, beating the hell out of the Iranian terror, the epitome of evil. It just captured the moment. Several years later, Sergeant Slaughter came back in 1991 uh, and, you know, and, in a much different context. Uh, he was he had aged he had obviously his skills had diminished but he had renounced his country and had taken on the and, and had embraced Saddam Hussein in Iraq at the height of the Iraq war and obviously he was trying to capture again tap into the political zeitgeist to generate heel heat and it didn't work it just it did not it did not click with people he was not the right guy to sell it. And we lived in a time in just seven years, we lived in a time where war and peace and military action had taken on a much more ambiguous feel in this country. And, and it just, it was, it was impossible to recapture lightning in a bottle. I always think about that when I, I think about the, the connection between the spirit of the age and the wrestling storylines of the time. Another one that comes to mind, Brother Love in 1987 or 1988 when he premiered in the aftermath of the Jim Baker and Jimmy Swagger scandals. It was absolute magic. The, the charlatan Southern preacher flashing his gaudy rings and his white flammable suits as he proclaimed to love us in his, his syrupy Southern accent. It lasted for a couple of years, but then... As, that, as those scandals receded in the memory, his character became less and less relevant. So, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think wrestling is a perfect reflection of a, a, the snapshot of the time, but it's just that, it's a snapshot. And just as quickly as these movements can come in, they quickly fade away. When you look at the parallels, oh, go ahead, Bill. No, no, go ahead, Matt. When you look at the parallels between wrestling and politics, it, it's so much the the person who you're you're cheering for, or the person you're voting for. It's it's a proxy for you. They're fighting on behalf of you against whatever the bad guy is, whether it's the heel that's been built up in wrestling, or in in our case, you know, the other party. Uh, the more you can paint that person as the villain, and that you're the one representing and being the proxy for every single person who's willing to pay money and get behind you, uh, that's gonna make you more successful. 
Jen, as the non-Gen X person here, I'm, I'm interested in what you think about what us graybeards are talking about. So I'm actually gonna throw this back to the Heart Foundation and we're gonna talk about different crowds of different places. We're gonna talk about the US crowd and we're gonna talk about the Canadian crowd. Oh. So I'm gonna use Kitman Bret Hart, one character. In the United States, we saw him as a heel. He was a hero in Canada, same character. And if that doesn't tell you the, uh, the difference that you can still have one character and look at it two very different ways, still being played the same exact way everywhere on tour. The interesting part about this, when you look particularly at Bret Hart, and we're gonna talk about the end of uh, his, uh, what was it, WW, was it WWE at the time or still WWF? It's referred to as the Montreal Screwjob. So basically what happened was he was going to be, in the backstory, we knew he was going to be leaving for another wrestling promotion and contracts change all the time with wrestling. So it's not necessarily unexpected, um, but his expectation, Vince McMahon, the expectation that he set up uh, for Bret Hart and then to have the title lost to him because Vince McMahon rang a bell and knowing that part of that was real, and you have not only the Canadian crowd ticked off, you have the Americans sitting at home watching this. And I remember watching this live. Same character. He's a heel for us in the United States. Do you know how ticked we are that he lost that match because of a bell ring? Because we want to see wrestling. We want to have a big fight. We want to see Shawn Michaels kick his teeth in. We want to see him fighting back and, you know, kicking back at Shawn Michaels. We, we, we want to see a really good battle. And to have that loss, regardless of whether he's a hero or he's a heel, we still all got upset about that. Now, it was perfect drama for TV. Don't get me wrong. But that, that's, you can still have one person uh, one political issue, having very different opinions. And when it doesn't work out that there is the expectation of a particular standard in the fight, you get both sides disappointed. And I think that's the real human side of all of this. And the way we portray things in uh, the storyline of politics and the storyline of um, the uh, different uh places in wrestling, um, you have to take a look. I've got Canada. I've got the United States who are supposed to be on opposite sides in this match going, what? At the television screen. That's perfection. So. That, that is a terrific example. That, I, I absolutely love that example. It's brilliant. The angriest I had ever seen the Canadian crowd since the Curry, Gretzky, Messier, and Edmonton Oilers in the early 80s. They were just angry, which was also a Survivor Series, I believe, which was 26 years ago. And I don't, I don't know. I, I, I hope I don't go into mansplaining, but if you ever have a chance to see the documentary Hitman Heart, uh, mm -hmm. that would be I have. You have. It, it's amazing. Yes. I mean, you know, the, the staggering Vince McMahon out of the dressing room after uh, Brett one punched him after the screw job was is worth the price of admission. Jen, yes. I, I want to start with you in our third and final round, um, so to speak, which is a thing that I have seen change so much for the better over the last 10 or 15 years. I hope my fellow panelists will agree is the rise of female wrestlers. 
And, you know, there is no, I mean, we can remember fabulous Moolah, Wendy Richter, Cindy Lauper, and all that. And then we can remember the gorgeous ladies of wrestling period, which turned into WWE divas. Um, but now, I mean, female matches, ladies matches are main eventing pay-per-views. I mean, as, as are, as are, so as our female representative on the panel, how has that change changed, influenced your enjoyment of, of, of wrestling? Well, I can tell you um, when I see my daughter want to put on her headband that's got a ponytail and she's whipping it around when Bianca Belair is coming out, my heart is very happy. Um, she sees the value that we place in wrestling um, more and more on women and athleticism and the capabilities. And then you take a look at the different variety of women, the different shapes, the different sizes. You have Dewdrop, you have Ronda Rousey, um, you have Charlotte Flair, you have all sorts of different people who provide the entertainment, the athleticism, and that that really shows that you've got a mini representation of the world. And yeah, in some places where perchance uh, in particular, when we're setting up things around the world, like the WWE does, they're a little bit more sensitive to cultural sensitivities. And like in the Middle East where they haven't been having the women perform, but it's still a huge deal to even say, this is our roster, you know, and as a company, we're willing to bring part of that to you and maybe even eventually on the sporting side, be able to provide something like that. Cause I would go see an all women wrestling show. I would pay top tier money and I would have a fantastic time because there is just as much variety coming on in the women as they're in the men. Um, I have to, you know, give a big throwback to uh, China uh, back in the DX era because she was literally throwing men around and I mean, and then you really got to see like her more feminine side when she was the stage escort for sexual chocolate. So they really did a good job of going, we've put her as the enforcer. We've put her as this, you know, she's got athleticism. She's doing, uh, was referred to as um, like a back handspring in the ring um, as part of, you know, her flair. And then hold on, we're going to show she's got a soft feminine side. And we're also going to pull that out of Mark Henry, which was a pretty awesome thing to do. So you see better story arcs. You see better um, better quality of support for women in wrestling. And that makes me happy because I want to see a woman wrestling just as much as I want to be entertained by seeing a man. Gentlemen, your thoughts. Either of you, you yeah. yeah. I was waiting for Len to talk. <laughs> I gotta say, the um, the women's wrestling thing, uh, I just want to do a little sidebar, is that so much of the innovation in pro wrestling in the 80s and 90s was coming out of other countries. Uh, and, and WCW latched onto that by bringing in AAA stuff, bringing in uh, the women from out of the country. One of the first Survivor Series that I ever went to was in the mid 90s because I desperately wanted to see some of the women from all Japan women. Uh, because that was the stuff that when I first saw the jumping bomb angels in the eighties, where did this come from? What is this? Uh, it was so innovative and so new. And I didn't know where, really where to get into it until I started doing tape trading and such in the nineties and got into women like Kyoko Inoue 
who came over and participated in it. I think it was a Lunder Blaze Medusa against Bertha Fay, and they each had a bunch of Japanese women wrestlers on their, their teams. This is maybe 95, 96. Uh, it was so exciting to see that in person. I waited outside the arena to make sure that I could do the little, you know, with the, uh, the Japanese women. Uh, but that was the innovative stuff that the American women didn't really embrace for a while. And I think it's because that Vince didn't feel like it was something that the fans would want to see. So get it going forward to now, the evolution that's occurred where the women are doing the same moves as the men, if not more challenging, uh, right. higher impact stuff. It's great to see that you are able to have a, um, a WrestleMania that's headlined by men or women, just depending on the quality of the matches and the excitement of the shows. Uh, and even MCW here locally, we just did our very first all women's show and it was it was great to do. So. Yeah, and just to build on what my colleagues have already covered, uh, I wanna make two points in conclusion. One is just to acknowledge two of the pioneers of the women's sport who really laid the groundwork for the explosion in this genre that we're experiencing today. One, uh, you know, we've already covered, and Nat mentioned earlier was Medusa Michelli, who, was, who competed under a couple of names, Alundra Blaze, but Medusa was, she was so far ahead of her time when she premiered the 1980s in the 1980s in the in the old AWA. Uh, she could she could wrestle fast scientific. She was she could go heel. Uh, she could generate positive heat, negative heat. Uh, she brought sex appeal without being overly sexualized, and she was a perfect turn of the page from the old uh, fabulous moolah traveling troupe that. Uh, Vince would, you know, put on TV as purely exhibition sport, uh, along with the so-called midgets back in the early to mid 80s. And of course, you can't talk about the rise of women's wrestling without talking about Wendy Richter and uh, that narrative arc, the, the rock and wrestling connection that culminated in at WrestleMania 1 when she defeated Fabulous Moolah and ended her fictitious 28-year uh, women's title reign. Those two were absolutely at the at the out, at the outset of the of what we now what we now see on uh, in, you know on the mainstream stage. I want to add no, one to the mix, Len. Huh? Sensational Sherry Martel. That's has true. To be in that mix too. Yeah, yes. and, while, and while we're talking about building a Mount Rushmore, Sensational Sherry and also uh, Baby Doll uh, Nicola Roberts, uh, who was. She she maybe maybe is one step behind because her primary role was that of the villainous valet, but she was also a formidable physical presence, six foot, and someone who could actually mix it up physically with the male counterparts in defending her charges like Gina Hernandez and Tully Blanchard. The other thing I'll say is that while wrestling has embraced and mainstreamed uh, the women's sport, we're, we're learning behind the scenes that uh, that they, that pro wrestling and the WWE in particular have a long, long way to go when it comes to uh, providing the even baseline protections from sexual harassment, sexual violence, uh, pay disparities between women and men. And we've seen in a couple of cases where uh, prominent women's wrestlers have uh have uh, encountered problems with substance abuse, mental health challenges, have in terrible cases taken their own lives. And we go back and find that they were subjected to just 
inexcusable working conditions during their time in the WWE or WWF. So as we continue to move forward, uh, there is a moral obligation and a legal obligation to ensure that these women have all the protections that their male counterparts have taken for granted for decades. Well, and I can just add to that. I mean, two notably tragic cases that were unfortunately some years ago, uh, not just China, but also Miss Elizabeth. Yeah. And what happened to both of them and both of them both died way too young. And uh, then there are any number of, of female wrestlers and valets who not only have been exploited, like, like you mentioned, Len, but then uh, as do their male counterparts. But um, with the ladies, it's much more so because, as you said, they don't make that much money, um, you know, fall into drug use, crime, jail, prostitution, and in, in many Tammy Sitch comes to mind. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly yeah. what I was yeah. thinking about. Everybody, any we could go on for a long, long time. Uh, but I want to, you know, show my gratitude for you all appearing this morning by turning it over to you. Any any final thoughts that any of the three of you may offer? Well, for me, Bill, I, I know our whole friendship started with pro wrestling. Uh, because I had that been a is. fan in Boston. I had been all over at the time the Usenet, RSPW. Uh, and I remember the story still of coming down to visit our mutual friend, Greg. And Greg saying, oh, the mutants of Boston are coming to visit. He said, you do not know the mutants of Boston. Uh, so that, that started, what is it, like 30 years now of, of knowing each yeah. other. And, and you can still on WWE, on Peacock, you can watch the Bash at the Beach 90, no, the Great American Bash, 1996 pay-per-view from Baltimore. And you can see myself, Nat, and several of the mutants of Boston prominently in the section directly opposite the camera. And you will especially enjoy the huge Mongo Sucks bedsheet that was erected during the Mongo Kevin Green versus the Horseman match, uh, which it was in an era where signs were banned, which also saw us turn from saying Mongo Sucks to Mongo Rocks after Mongo turned heel and turned with the Horseman. One final thought related to all that, and uh, it goes to our friend Joe, rest in peace. Uh, the phrase that he always used, and it's, it's true for wrestling as it is for politics, for those who understand, no explanation is necessary. For those who don't, no explanation will do. Well put, sir. Jen, Len, either of you thoughts? Um, I'm going to use this opportunity to... Uh let you all know that my favorite wrestler happens to be Eddie Guerrero, uh, God rest his soul. Um, and that um, I'm surprised that question didn't come up, Bill. Who's your favorite wrestler? Um, <laughs> I know that, that, would be for the, that would be for part two. Okay. Sign me up for part two. Um, but to understand that, you know, uh, everything is such a microcosm um, of life and the nice part about wrestling is we get to watch it on pay-per-view. We get to watch it on, um, you know, the streaming service uh, through Peacock. We get to watch it on old YouTube videos. Um, I pay for a New Japan subscription. Or technically, I think my son pays for my New Japan subscription, but that, that, that's a minor detail. Um, so we, we can 
feel all this all around the world and feel the history of it. And that's something other people couldn't do back when I was a kid watching it in the 80s and the early 90s. And the interconnectedness, you you really get a unique perspective of how society has changed and how we've seen that too through the scope of the story writing, incorporating more women, um, changing uh, the character issues and the char- character conflicts to fit what's going on in real life at the time. Uh, so I, I, I think that's a pretty unique takeaway and not everywhere you can't go to baseball and i love baseball you can't go to baseball and say you know this game with this set of rules um really kind of gave me a reflection of what real life was like you can talk about your experience at the game what was happening around it but the rules of baseball are pretty pretty hard and fast generally speaking i might disagree with a call here or there but wrestling because of that entertainment part with it i can flip on aew i can flip on uh you know wwe i can flip on all these things and also get a little tiny microcosm of what's going on in the time at the time which is pretty cool i'll leave on that note len bring us home as you want to do well bill uh 1991 is when we started our friendship it, we actually met in October that year, just one month prior to The Undertaker defeating Hulk Hogan for his first of many WWF World Heavyweight titles. Uh, so you and I have known one another since the the dawn of The Undertaker era in professional wrestling and in the American consciousness, uh, which is to say their friendship has been a very durable one. And I hope that uh, just as we've exchanged many laughs and uh storylines and plots over the past 31 years i hope we have another 31 years left to come and many more after that and so thank you for this opportunity thank you for your friendship i'm grateful for it jen and nat thank you for being uh part of the show this morning it's been jen it's great to see you again i'm proud of what you've done uh to make a difference in maryland's first congressional district and up in cecil county nat it's Great to have met you. I hope to have the pleasure to uh, share the digital ways with you again sometime soon. And happy Thanksgiving to you all. And thank you, Len. And thank you, Jen and and Nat. I treasure both of your friendships a great deal. And thank you out there in viewer and or listener land for this very special episode of Forward Maryland. Steve and I will be back with some of the regular nonsense next week. Till then. Have a great rest of your holiday weekend, everybody. Take care.